Thanks so much, Noah, for being here today. Welcome to the Curious Expression Podcast. Thanks for having me here, Pinder. So I know you have a background in mathematics and technology, so I was wondering if you could tell me just a little bit about how you got started and all that. Uh, school, then work, more or less. Uh, uh, you know, uh, just just went through school, was good at picking up math, wound up going to the University of Virginia, uh, studied engineering, studied nuclear engineering, not a lot of jobs there. So uh, dot-com jobs were cheap and plentiful. Uh, mm. So I got a job in that uh, and started picking up computer programming algorithms. What essentially, though, like, I guess, made you love math? Was it just like the logic of it all? Or was it that like, maybe like, there's always like, you know, that one solution to a problem? Like, well, there's, there's two things. Um, number one, I have this kind of quirky brain, and I, I'm terrible at remembering arbitrary information. Mm. Uh, so I was a really bad speller. I still am not a great speller. I'm terrible with names. Uh, that crimps social interaction uh uh history uh, i've managed to find ways to to pull together some historical facts but again wasn't my best subject uh but when all you can remember is things that make sense math gets a lot easier because math is basically only things that make sense and <laughs> nothing else so uh there was certainly a, a trend in that direction but the other thing is it's it's tools right um human beings are the technology animal uh we aren't the only tool users we aren't the only problem solvers on earth but we are way out in front and uh, just as a general principle uh figuring out whatever the most powerful thing is, is, is sort of the best strategy. And as it happens, uh, computers are the most powerful thing there, there is. I mm -hmm. didn't always, you know, they were in my childhood, they were presented as sort of game machines and toys. So I, I was a little late to the party. Mm -hmm. Uh, but once, once I realized, uh, what compilers were, what the potential of of computer technology was, there's just not really much point in working anywhere else. Yeah, it was a no-brainer for you? Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things that kind of came out of mathematics and technology or the combination of them was basically algorithms. I was wondering if you could give us just a quick summary of what an algorithm is and uh, how did you first get into algorithm developing? Uh, so algorithms uh, are really sort of recipes uh, or or machines. So an algorithm is a technique or technology that actually accomplishes some task or computation. Um, and they can be incredibly specific uh, where you have how you personally tie your shoes um, they can be incredibly general, uh, mechanisms to determine whether or not a given number is prime. Um, they can be incredibly physical, a, an assembly line or a machine on assembly line is executing part of an algorithm to do construction, or they can be entirely abstract. Um, so it's a, it's sort of a bucket word. There's a lot of stuff in there. 
and they're pretty much like everywhere, right? Like even in our cell phones all the time and everything. Uh, yeah. So the that's that's the thing. Um, the silicon chip is effectively an algorithm made made manifest, uh, mm-hmm. and it's a very special kind of algorithm. It's a computer. Computers are algorithms that can take in a description of an algorithm and behave like they're a machine for doing the algorithm that was described to them. Mm-hmm. So imagine, if you will, if you instead of having a car, you had this machine, and if you fed the blueprints for a car into it, it was a car. But if you fed the blueprints for a boat into it, it was a boat. Mm-hmm. And if you fed the blueprints of like uh, some kind of road repair unit into it, or a jackhammer, say, it would be that. That's the the your cell phone. Um, is is operated by its computer chip and that computer chip has programs in it that tell it how a phone behaves so it behaves like a phone but the apps that you download that allow it to behave like an interface to instagram or tiktok um it's just that's what it's doing so it's basically something that takes instructions and then executes those instructions is that essentially it basically uh yes yes um but the 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 crazy thing essentially is that you can write down a set of instructions that are capable of reading instructions that can be anything mm-hmm. and then behave as if it's any one of those anything instructions. Okay, got it. And so when did you first start getting into algorithm developing? Uh pretty quickly uh when I when I got into being a professional programmer, uh, I have always mediated towards the the back office stuff and and finding my my way through some of the heavier lift problems. Um, one of my first assignments at my first job was rewriting the system that read the web logs for this company to determine what what their users, how their users actually use their site. Mm-hmm. Um, and that took me a long time because I was learning how to program at the same time that I was learning about these, these tools. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, the, the, the new system that I eventually got working was hundreds of thousands of times more more capable than the system that had gone before it. And that's, that's one of the amazing things about computer algorithms and these, these semi mathematical uh, uh, improvements is that because of the scale that people are now operating at where we don't, I mean, we're just having a conversation, but zoom is managing, you know, probably hundreds of thousands of conversations right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so doing a, a, a tiny fraction of a percent better in one instance is, is essentially unnoticeable but when you can break things down into you you can break a hundred thousand things into a billion pieces each and make each one of those pieces tiny tiny amounts better um you or eliminate vast numbers of them then you can achieve these enormous improvements 
Talk to me a little bit about misconceptions about algorithms, because I remember I saw a documentary once and it was talking about how algorithms are good, but they can also sometimes be dangerous or taken uh, maybe out of control. Uh, so what are your thoughts about that? Like, what's something that maybe the average person gets wrong about algorithms or there's like misconceptions? Well, um, I think the thing that the average person gets wrong about algorithms is that they're some kind of privileged special thing that you know, smart people in Silicon Valley are doing or something like that. <laughs> um, the Joy of Cooking is a book of algorithms for turning, you know, products that you buy at the grocery store into delicious meals. Mm. Uh, you have to do all the execution work on those. So it's a little bit different. But you in your day-to-day -day life are developing and, and creating algorithms. But because it's it's a bucket word and because it's so slippery and because these things can be so incredibly complicated, misconceptions about algorithms exist along every level. So another thing that the sort of man in the street thinks about these, like, you know, Silicon Valley, Svengali's doing whatever they're doing, they think that they know what they're doing. And in point of fact, not really. Um, the these systems that we've unleashed on our global cultures and politics um, uh, are being manipulated in ways that are short-sighted and and usually counterproductive. Um, so, uh, for example, the, the Google search algorithm is probably the most interacted with thing on the planet. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's actually being manipulated so much these days that one of the most common things I hear from people about Google search is that it's just, it's, you know, it's not what it used to be. Like when I got on Google five years ago or 10 years ago, like whoever, whatever age, you know, I've, I got on Google 20 plus years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, you know, it used to be better. And everybody says that no matter how long they've been on there. It's like, oh, yeah, it used to. But now it's, well, the problem is that the, the core concept of the Google algorithm wasn't that they would be smarter than everybody else. It's that they would extract all of our intelligence and present it to us. Mm -hmm. But they didn't come up with a stable way to do that. And so they with the rise of seo and marketing people getting involved in that in messaging and trying to manipulate the google algorithm um what has happened is that they they have a brand based on their historical ability to sort of do well mm -hmm. um and they're not you know the dumbest people on earth so they're still doing okay-ish but uh they they can't recapture the their original abilities because they built an algorithm that we have broken mm. and and there's no way back without rethinking it from scratch speaking of search engines so like you know let's say you know me average joe wants to let's say build their own search engine so do i essentially like copy and paste google's like i guess algorithm and then just make my own tweaks to it or do i have to kind of start from scratch building an algorithm if i want to create like a search engine uh well so they do actually sell some access and some interest and this is something that a number of other search engines take advantage of so like DuckDuckGo, for example is mm -hmm. using google resources so there's a certain amount of not from scratchness that that 
goes into things. Um, a, a search engine really comes down to solving two problems, uh, one that's expensive and one that's difficult. So the expensive problem is having access to the entire internet. Um, this is not technically complicated um, because websites exist to show themselves off to people who ask about them. <laughs> so building crawlers that can crawl around and see what's out there is not enormously challenging. Um, Storing all of that data and keeping track and up to date with all of that data and fighting with websites that don't want to be spammed by your web crawler and figuring out what's going on and with modern interactive websites looking inside the boxes to figure out what's really there. Mm -hmm. All of those things become more complicated, but the major problem is with ephemeral and and sort of changeable data the amount of information that you need to store and index is just enormous and mm -hmm. that costs a lot of money mm -hmm. um but then there's the hard problem and that's that's sorting it so mm -hmm. people don't care that google has a copy of the entire internet people care that when they type in you know sheep table gray mm -hmm. uh the thing that comes up is the thing that they were thinking in their head that they wanted to see when they mm -hmm. typed those words together. Um, and who the hell knows what sheep table gray means? Like <laughs> I just made up three words. So how do you sort this list of trillion plus different possible answers mm -hmm. to be the most relevant? And in particular, how do you sort them so that they will be what the person who just typed in some random set of characters, what they would want that sorting order to be? Mm -hmm. Bearing in mind that there's, you know, billions of people on the Internet and billions, you know, still to come, all of whom are individuals, all of whom have their own points of view and who, mm -hmm. in theory, all have their own particular sort orders that they would want applied. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's interesting how, like, especially, like, since social media kind of came into play, there's a lot of people trying to take advantage of these algorithms and trying to, you know, manipulate them so that, like, hey, look at me, you know, not that other guy. Absolutely. Yeah, being on the front page of Google is vastly more valuable to to a website than having the most valuable content related to the subject matter that they are, you know, if if you had to pick between producing utter bilge and pure nonsense and always being the top entry of every single Google search that everyone makes and having the most relevant and important data on every single subject, but just being at a random position in the Google search, um, you would be economically insane to choose to be of value to humanity and have real data, you would be so much better off personally just have, you know, blah, kaza, baga, and just being at the top of every Google search. So this is a bad incentive system where being right is gets gets you nothing. Being at the top of the Google search gets you everything. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I forget who said it, but somebody once said, uh, you, you can have the best product in the world, but if nobody knows about it, you ain't going to sell anything. <laughs> I, I resemble that remark. <laughs> um, so uh, kind of going back to the same topic of uh, algorithms maybe possibly being good or bad, uh, how can we ensure that algorithms are developed ethically as possible? That's an incredibly difficult question and one that our societies aren't really in a position to address very well. Um, I think one of the most important things for any publicly used algorithm is that it must be open. Uh, this is this is a difficulty that all of the current uh, social media sites, uh, Google, Twitter, uh, Facebook, um, even Amazon, can't publish the the sort of full real answer of what gets up and what doesn't get up. Mm -hmm. um, Elon Musk did publish some stuff, but uh, you know there's a lot of human cutouts and and so on that are are part of that system and mm -hmm. and an algorithm isn't just what machines are doing; it it can also be what people are doing. So uh, if if you completely publish everything your machines are doing and what they're doing is giving some secret cabal of human beings decisions that they can make that then affect everything. Mm -hmm. That's not, <laughs> that's not a, that's not an open system. Yeah. Um, so we've seen this uh, particularly in cryptography. Uh, there was a story. I don't know if you saw this. I, I'm not going to remember the, the protocol correctly, but a, a commonly used, uh, radio protocol by uh, tactical military teams as well as fire and police and, and many other groups was uh, within the last few months finally reverse engineered. It was a it was a proprietary uh, protocol, so nobody was allowed to sort of look at it. But researchers finally did reverse engineer and worked out how to what was actually going on, and they found an enormous number of major vulnerabilities um, that meant that people who were aware of these vulnerabilities would be able to listen in or interfere with these signals pretty easily. Mm -hmm. um, and is that going on? Nobody knows, but it, it absolutely could have been going on and for decades. Mm -hmm. um, so the number one thing that would need to happen is that the entirety of the operational algorithm would have to be uh, open mm -hmm. and then the the second thing is that actual ethical debate over that open structure would have to be engaged in um mm -hmm. and we do neither of those things um <laughs> we 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 our political system is not competent to have meaningful ethical debate about uh modern technology uh that's mm -hmm. not that's not what we select on we're selecting for uh you know leadership and and sort of political willingness um which which are necessary but entirely insufficient to mm -hmm. be able to grasp the issues at hand uh and uh we we promote private uh over open in every sphere people think of people think of secret as being safer and that mm. is precisely wrong hmm. what do you think about government so like i know a lot of these technologies sometimes they come out like for example social media i don't think our political system was necessarily prepared for that 
those types of algorithms to be developed. What do you think governments uh, could potentially do or implement to maybe safeguard, I guess, uh, maybe like anarchy or something like that happening? Well, our governments are unlikely to to survive much longer in the face of the pressures being put upon them by these mm-hmm. systems. Um, as as you say, they're not prepared. Uh, we have we have systems of governments around the world that depend for their legitimacy on their popularity. Um, so the notion is that the people support the government, and therefore the government is allowed to do all the crap that it does. Mm-hmm. Um, but popularity is rapidly changing its meaning in a world where personalized relationships are scaling. So there are dozens or hundreds of people who have personal followings in the tens of millions and higher. Um, there are a handful of U.S. senators that that enjoy that degree of of public support um and of course the president uh is receives votes that are on that scale um but that's it and and that's in this country like we're a big country in smaller mm-hmm. countries maybe nobody in the in the entire country would actually have that degree of support certainly if the population of your country is 8 million which is a totally respectable number nobody will have 10 million supporters in that country mm-hmm. um so so we have this very large essentially anarchic group of human beings who within the context of our existing thoughts about what constitutes political legitimacy are more politically legitimate than the leaders of 99% of the countries that exist <laughs> on earth um to date, we haven't seen really serious breakages there, but um, there have started to be some uh, political viral movements that have occurred. Uh, there's a lot of information about social media s- sites manipulating and shifting votes. Um, there's a researcher out of Stanford uh, that that has some papers suggesting that uh, with no more than sort of Google completion, um, they can they can move millions of votes one way or another. Uh, so government itself is going to have to use these mechanisms of finding ethical algorithms to to reinvent itself as governments that are capable of ethical action. And and that's uh, I see I see our economies, our our governments, and our cultures as all being in under existential threat. Mm-hmm. And and defense is the wrong answer. Um, we have vastly more powerful tools if we're going to be able to actually use these tools, which I think we should. Mm-hmm. I, I'm in favor of human beings being wealthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we're going to have to develop more powerful and more ethical structures to allow us to use these tools without them just crushing us into grapes. So, so that's the problem. People who are interested in politics and government need to come up with governmental forms that are capable of, of being legitimate because we don't have any of those yet. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the same thing goes, I'm, I'm in the economic sphere myself. uh, But 
the economic and cultural spheres, markets are aren't really working very well anymore, and they're getting worse. Um, culture isn't doing its job. Uh, around the world, we've seen crashing birth rates, crashing marriage rates, uh, increased levels of human unhappiness, um, uh, increased rates of suicide. Uh, so, and and look at all the nostalgia bait that's that's in our our popular culture that that there's there's no there's no fresh there's no new there there's a huge sort of going back to the well kind of fun so it's it's pretty obvious to see the symptoms and if you run through the math of what computers are and what the consequences of this algorithms that do algorithms that can do algorithms that can do algorithms you know infinitely recursive thing mm-hmm. it becomes very obvious that the systems that we have are based on the notion that humans will make all decisions about everything. And Mm -hmm. that's simply no longer true and hasn't been for about a generation now. So I know that one of the things that kind of keeps a lot of our structures intact and in place and safe is this idea that uh, when it comes to the P versus NP problem, basically they're kind of, hoping that P does not equal NP. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about P versus NP, that problem, what it is, um, and I guess your thoughts about it. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so P versus NP is a computational complexity problem. And essentially what I think it's down to is how hard are v- various questions. And the the best explanation I've ever heard is that a problem is in P if... When you're asked the problem, you know the answer. And a problem is in NP if when you're asked a problem and told the answer, then you know the answer. So there's actually problems that are harder than NP. Um, so, for example, if I asked you what the temperature uh, would be second by second over the the 24 hours of six weeks from now would be, you wouldn't know the answer. And if by some miracle I handed you the answer, you'd be like, well, that definitely could be an answer, but I still don't know that that's mm-hmm. the answer. Um, so that's an example of a problem that's harder than NP. Um, but that that disparity of whether or not, uh, given the fact that you can write a fugue that will repeat itself in a in successively higher keys automatically allows you to know the box rising fugues precise note sequence Mm -hmm. um or that you know that this ciphertext was the result of nazi enigma machines and now you automatically know what the decoding key is Mm -hmm. um uh a lot of problems are related to np uh that that are important to our our world. I haven't done much work in this field, um, so I don't have much of an opinion on like the likelihood of cracking. Um, I do know that the problem of determining whether P equals NP is in NP, um, <laughs> and it has been stated i've i've read papers which which point out that it essentially is the hardest possible np problem um there are 
many people, for example, the the leaders of now Alphabet, but formerly Google, uh, have publicly stated that they do not believe that P equals NP because the advantages that would accrue to a system that understood how to solve NP problems are so enormous that that evolution would have stumbled over it and there would be animals that that solved np problems and mm. those animals would be dominant and since we're dominant and we haven't solved it therefore they can't be the same mm. that's not a mathematical argument and not one that i find particularly persuasive mm -hmm. one wrinkle that's worth considering is that a problem being in p doesn't quite exactly mean that it's still easy so mm. The general thinking is that essentially all problems in P are basically just like adding numbers together. And so knowing that knowing that NP equals P and having this universal algorithm would also be a simple universal algorithm that we would just be able to take an input and produce an amount of work that was proportional to that input. So let's say uh, let's say we had an NP problem solver. And it took one second for every character that you gave. So if you type in a, a question string that's 100 characters long, then a little under two minutes later, it tells you what the answer is. Okay, okay well, that radically changes how the universe functions. But what if instead of one per one second per character, it's some different polynomial? So if it was cubed, a 100 character question would take 1 million seconds. Mm -hmm. Well, a million seconds is a little over a day and 100 characters is a lot. There's a lot you could ask. So there'd still be some pretty good things. Things would shift pretty quickly. Um, but there's no reason that it would have to be as small as a three. Um, that number could be incredibly large. There are there are mathematical structures which cannot be simplified that are representations of spaces with thousands of dimensions. Mm -hmm. um, so if, if there was some sort of connection between P equaling NP and these simplest possible complex structures that we're aware of, um, that number could be in the millions or the billions, mm -hmm. um, at which point, if it was say one million, uh, a one character request would be trivially quick to solve, but a two character request wouldn't actually get finished within the lifetime of our universe. Mm -hmm. um, and one character requests are basically meaningless and even two character requests aren't getting much. Mm -hmm. So the possibility exists that P could equal NP, but the universal algorithm could be so complicated that our, you know, tiny ape brains that we have to deal with <laughs> just just aren't big enough to cope with them. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought about uh, like the economic consequences if we ever did figure out that P equaled NP like, man, like I, I, I wouldn't be able to keep my money in my bank account because anybody could create an algorithm to figure out my password. <laughs> uh, well, so there's there's some other related things as well. Um, it's been determined that uh, trust and understanding are actually mutually incompatible concepts. And this has nothing to do with the PV equal NP. It has to do with the, the question that you're directly interested in. So there's a mathematical concept called a one-way function. Mm 
Okay. So this is a function that takes an input, produces an output. And if I hand you the output, the only practical way for you to figure out the input is to take the function, throw things into it until you get a matching output. And then whatever you threw in that got that output was the answer. Hmm. Um, and so one-way functions are actually the central concept of cryptography. For cryptography to actually exist in our universe, i.e. for your bank account to actually be capable of being secured, mm -hmm. one-way functions would have to exist. Mm -hmm. We don't know whether or not one-way functions do exist. We have candidate one-way functions, some of which are done in these ethical algorithmic ways that I've talked about, mm -hmm. although there are not open public debates on the ethics of those algorithms because mm -hmm. again, we're not qualified for that. Uh, but there are other ones that are proprietary and which are not being done in open manners and who the hell knows whether or not mm -hmm. they work or not. Uh, but mathematically speaking, they might not exist. There might not be any such thing as an actual one-way function. It is mm -hmm. certainly the case that Many of the candidates that we have put forward, uh, which, you know, they used ciphers in the Civil War, uh, the Enigma machine that the Nazis were using is very famous. Um, those those have all been long broken. We know that they're not one way functions. The people that invented them thought they were. Mm -hmm. uh, but Edgar Allan Poe actually wrote an essay on the, the idea that. Anybody can write a code that they think can't be broken, um, mm. but the challenge is to write a code that other people actually can't break. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I feel like a lot of this PNP stuff, it, it almost makes me feel like I'm in the movie Inception, where like you think you're heading one direction, and then you open a door, and you realize you're still dreaming, and you're within dream, and all this kind of stuff. That's that's one of the that's one of the things about this level of abstraction with computers is that uh, uh, it's it's sort of it's sort of inception all the way down. So in general, we don't actually run programs on our computers. We have layers and layers. So a browser is itself one of these computer machines that's running mm -hmm. on a computer machine, and it's usually running on a virtual machine, which is a program that acts like a specific computer that, that is standardized across multiple hardware sets. Um, and it's written in a programming language, which is a description of a computer that can then reportedly operate across multiple programming sets. And that system is compiling itself to assembly code, which itself is in usually compiling internally into machine code and machine instructions. And so it's not, it's not unusual in a modern systems for the computer that you're operating on to be the seven or 10th degree of computers that are sitting within themselves. Um, mm -hmm. If you get into cloud computing, that's a whole nother scale where the the physical machine is doing all of those things in order to pretend like it's a physical machine that then has a set of all of those things inside of it mm -hmm. um and uh and yeah it, it can get quite quite hard to imagine what's going on very quickly mm -hmm. so how about ai what are your thoughts about ai 
So I've actually launched a podcast with the former CTO of Reddit, Marty Wiener, uh, to talk about AI. Uh, it's called The Fourth Age. It's on all the biggies, uh, Spotify, Apple, um, uh, Google. Uh, but I think that it's important to distinguish between super intelligence and general intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about general intelligence, the idea of creating computer systems that essentially can act as human beings uh, and can do whatever we throw at them. So you can sort of have virtual assistants that will be able to go out and buy you airplane tickets and negotiate for better prices and figure out how to run your business better and so on. That is a a fairly difficult problem, um, particularly if it's also going to be better at it than you are or better at it than the best human beings are. Hmm. Um, and the the systems that have captured the public imagination are not those types of systems uh-huh. and aren't really well well we think of the ability to write college essays and love letters to your girlfriend and you know advice on your homework as generally intelligent um there's not really a strong sign that it it actually is uh, and in particular some of the the worst hallucination behaviors of of these things point up those those failings but the other very interesting use of this kind of approach to using computers is superintelligence. That is systems that can consistently and coherently outperform top humans at things. And this is something that we have repeatedly demonstrated over the course of the last couple of decades. Uh, multiple games um, are now best played by computers, uh, chess, poker, go, uh, all have computer programs that trivially outperform the best human players. Uh, the the Google team that does these things actually just released uh, diplomacy and stratego players that were at or or past top human abilities on their first iteration, and yeah. they can they can get better uh, over time. But other things as well. Uh, Google's Translate. Uh, which is not an intelligent system by any stretch of the imagination, still can pretty consistently outperform human translation abilities um, just by having an incredibly large corpus of data that it's doing very simple, but a lot of statistics on. Um, there's been other other things where they built stuff. Uh, Google, again, has a group that built a machine that can do protein folding and is now getting into the prospect of uh, synthetic life research. Uh, they they just had one I saw last week where they're looking at uh, single insertion DNA probabilities of error. So mm-hmm. your DNA is a very long list of letters, effectively, uh, that gives your cells instructions. So when we talked about computation, your cells biological cells are computational objects. Um, but if you inserted an extra letter, so like imagine you're reading a, a, a novel um, and so you see the words and they're separated by spaces, but somebody uh, stuck an extra letter in, but but a computer flowed everything forward. And so now instead of it being WAS space HE was he, it's now 
W-A-I space S-H space mm. E, you know, suddenly you could still read it, like mm -hmm. if you're paying attention, but the, the spaces are now in the wrong place. And so mm. now it's going to be very confusing, very hard to deal with that. Mm. Um, and some of those insertions can cause a lot of damage to a system. Some of those insertions, it won't even notice and it has no effect. And so they're, they're doing some work on trying to figure out what kinds of mistakes are tolerable and what kind of mistakes are intolerable. So they're, mm -hmm. they're going full steam ahead and that's not, that's not what's capturing the public imagination. Like I have not seen those guys sitting in Senate committee hearings, uh, <laughs> you know, answering questions about transhumanism. Mm -hmm. um, also the Google team uh, developed a programmer, a programming bot, and uh, they created a network sorting algorithm that was uh, supposedly 5% faster at scale than the current best known program. Mm -hmm. um, we talked earlier about how the hard problem with the search engine was sorting. Mm -hmm. Sorting trillions of things is very expensive. Google spends billions of dollars a year on that uh, using the very best algorithms they can find. They now have a machine that gave them an algorithm that's 5% faster. If you're spending a billion dollars a year and you can get 5% faster, then you can save yourself tens of millions of dollars a year. That's mm -hmm. that's not inconsequential. Yeah. So we are seeing the seeds uh, for over a decade now of super intelligence. And we have a lot of fields um, in politics and the professions and finance and culture where intelligence that the top people are valued for their intelligence and and their insights and their sort of abilities we can now build machines that can outperform those people at those levels we can't use those machines because the systems that we have built are built around human beings and we can't we can't have better decision makers in our companies and governments because we can only have people in those positions. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a choice. We can basically kill people by making bad decisions the way that we currently know how to make bad decisions, mm -hmm. or we can offer those people that we were killing better lives of greater wealth than people have ever experienced before by developing systems that can actually exploit insights that are greater than human beings can generate just because we can't read the entire internet all at once or we can't think 20 moves deep um within reasonable time frames mm -hmm. speaking of people so i know one uh thing that kind of comes up in the ai world is this thing called the turing test and that's the idea that can you recognize that the thing that you're interacting with is a machine or a human being uh, could you talk a little bit about the Turing test? Uh, sure. That's gaining in popularity. Uh, and we talk about it on our podcast. Marty Brigley is a fan of the Turing test. Alan Turing uh, wrote the paper that introduced general computation as a concept to the world. Okay. Um, there were some earlier works that it turns out also had general computation, but they didn't really sort of know what they'd gotten their hands into. Um, and writing in i believe the 50s he speculated that um under test conditions that wouldn't allow you to actually personally interact with another party uh if a computer could 
converse with a human being well enough that the human being couldn't distinguish between its responses and another person, that computer might be said to be intelligent. Mm -hmm. There's a, a counter thought experiment called the Chinese Room that a philosopher named, I believe, John Cyril, although God knows if I got that right. Um, <laughs> I've never heard his name said. Uh, proposed. So imagine, if you will, a person uh, who's sitting inside of a library. And this library has an enormous number of books and this set of instructions for using the books. And the books contain all of the knowledge about the Chinese language. And so if you write out a a Chinese message on a slip of paper and slip it into this room, this person can very rapidly take that, look, look up the book, look symbol by symbol, and write a response which will be idiomatically perfect Chinese response to that, that thing, and then slip it back out. So the question Cyril supposes is, would you say that that person understands Chinese, or would you say that that system understands mm -hmm. Chinese? And most people, well, the setup for the, the thing is that the person doesn't understand Chinese. So most people are pretty happy with that. Most people are also pretty happy with the idea that that system doesn't understand Chinese either. Um, and the Chinese room is actually a very good model for things like ChatGPT. Um, it has this immensely complicated rule set for how to take in English and generate more English that is the response that that English is looking for. Um, it's not as perfect as the imagination of the Chinese room, but it's still very similar. And we have an intuitive concept about understanding, which might just be our delusions speaking, um, mm -hmm. that there's something bigger than that that you know library of of books that that constitutes what understanding actually is mm -hmm. uh but these are the questions that now confront us because we have we have machines at, at the highest level of chess there is an ongoing controversy about cheating um mm. and one of the major reasons for that is that it's trivially easy to cheat because you or I or anybody with a cell phone can beat the best human player on earth in a game of chess by relaying his moves to a computer and having the computer play against him. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's not something that exists in most other fields. Um, it isn't the case that you could win a pickup game of basketball against LeBron James by asking your cell phone how to dribble. Uh, but it's coming. You know, mm -hmm. Boston Dynamics, you could imagine several generations down the line that they would have a robot where you could just be like, you know, implement the LeBron James defeat protocol and it could go play basketball better than anybody mm -hmm. in the NBA could. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's crazy how quickly these things are developing. I remember when chat GPT first like blew up in the news. I remember I was like, oh, this is cool. I'll download it to check it out. And I think like a month or two later, the newest one was already out. I'm like, man, I just downloaded this. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, and there's there's a lot more people working in that space. And uh, NVIDIA just 
uh, funded a company that wants to build a network that will be uh, 10 times and then 100 times the size of ChatGPT's over the course of the next year and a half. Wow. So I'd like to now move on to game theory. So how does game theory, uh, why is it important and how is it involved in the work that you do? Well, game theory is the mathematics of strategy. Uh, and so going back again to how algorithms can be ethically implemented, and in particular, what actually would constitute an algorithm that would interact with people, uh, being able to bring the people's intentions and motivations into the mathematics of the algorithm is critical to being able to assure that the algorithm is actually doing something that's valuable versus something that's just a toy. Mm-hmm. Um, so the ability to add one plus one and getting two is an abstract, meaningless toy unless, uh, you know, you need to get all the apples for your two children together and, and knowing that one and one is two and getting two apples. Mm-hmm. So uh, game theory helps bridge that gap from uh, sort of a set of, of statements that are tautologically the case to a set of materialized, you know, pieces of code or, or machinery technology that that are actually of value. Mm-hmm. So what's like maybe a famous example of game theory? Uh, I know one is the prisoner's dilemma. Is there any other one that's like pretty famous that maybe we should know about? Uh, Quite a few, actually. There's uh, those two-player, two-choice games, of which the prisoner's dilemma is by far the most famous. There's a number of them that have have names. So uh, Chicken... Um, the Stag Hunt and Battle of the Sexes are three other two-player games of two choices each. And Battle of the Sexes in particular is an interesting one because it's got some of the prisoner's dilemma action, but it's also uh, a lot more cooperative. Um, so it's a cooperative game that, like Prisoner's Dilemma, is psychotic, where when people do what they want to do, the right thing never happens. So. <laughs> Battle of the Sexes is this proposal. A man and a woman are going to go on a date, but they haven't decided where. So what they're going to do is they're each going to separately leave and arrive at the venue. And there's two venues they can arrive at, the ball game and the opera. And the trick is they would rather be together than apart, but they both would rather be together (laughs) at their venue than the other person's venue. So the woman would really like to be at the opera with the guy, and the guy would really like to be at the ball game with the woman. So this is usually cast in terms of uh, generous or selfish. Each each player can either be generous and go to the thing the other person wants or selfish and go to the thing that you want. If both players are generous, then they both then you get the worst possible outcome. They're both alone and they're both at the thing they don't want to be at. Uh, if they're both selfish, it's a little bit better. They're still both alone, which sucks, but at least they're at the thing they want to be at. Mm -hmm. The good outcomes are when one party is selfish and the other party is generous Mm -hmm. and the game rewards the selfish person. (laughs) It's this thing where even when cooperation is the best outcome, it's not always the case that everybody's going to agree on how to cooperate. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I think sometimes, like in these games, like for example, uh, 
almost every night, right? Me and my wife were like, what do we want for dinner, right? And it's like, you know, I want this, she wants that. Um, and I think sometimes like other factors come into play too. Like, for example, like, you know, I don't want my wife yelling at me. <laughs> so, you know, maybe, you know, I want the other thing, but, you know, I'll let it slide for now and just go with hers, you know? So I um, mean, it's, it's interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The, these, these types of, these types of very simple games exist to give us an insight into a particular kind of strategy. Um, one of the things that's, fascinating and your wife yelling is an excellent example of this is that in prisoner's dilemma it's actually advantageous for a party to take options off the table for themselves so if the man uh uh you know has has like an earache and and can't listen to opera and the woman knows it then she knows that he will never go to the opera and so her her choices are now go to the ball game and be there with him which is what she, you know, which is her second favorite choice, or go to the opera and be there by herself, which is her third favorite choice. So she'll always go. Or if the woman, uh, you know, has an allergy to peanuts, beer, and hot dogs and could never go to a ball game, then the man now knows that going to the opera is his best, his best destiny because he can either be with her, which he wants, or he can not be with her, which he doesn't want. <laughs> um, so you get these weird negotiation positions where taking away your own options actually gives you better choices in the end. So what can the average person do on a daily basis? So I guess get better at game theory and reap some benefits. So like, for example, you know, should I be playing like Monopoly weekly or like, what should I be doing? <laughs> well, again, it's, it's actually about base strategy. So these, these sort of core situations like Prisoner's Dilemma, like Battle of the Sexes, like the Stag Hunt and so on, um, those pure situations are not going to show up in your day-to-day -day life, but the principles that underlie them will show up in your day-to-day -day life. And Things like understanding the value of restricting your own choices in order to gain better negotiating positions are something that you might be able to apply in your own job around salaries. Mm -hmm. um, if, if you have, if you have minimums below which you will not go, mm -hmm. um, then sure, uh, if, if those are above the maximums above which they will not go, then, then separation will occur. Mm -hmm. But, if not, then then you know, people pay as as little as they can. So the more they have to, the more they will. Um, so learning about these these structures and learning about what the pros and cons of different things are gives you a toolkit to start recognizing within your life: is this are you doing something that's stagnated at a level that's not really satisfying to you? Like what? If that's the case, then what do you need to do to break that logjam? Um, what you usually have to do is either bring in new blood that has a different opinion, or you have to, you know, step away from that game and and move move someplace else. Um, uh, Prisoner's dilemma demonstrates the value of there always being a tomorrow. So. Mm. Uh, in the prisoner's dilemma situation, betraying your partner is always your best move personally, but that leads to sort of the worst outcome globally. Mm -hmm. uh, 
But if there's going to be tomorrow where you're going to have to be in the room with the person you betrayed yesterday, <laughs> then maybe cooperating right now and then cooperating tomorrow and the next day and the day after that is going to gain you some more rewards over time. Mm-hmm. And and the same goes for them. So uh, those sorts of things can sort of build up on themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, are you aware of any book that I could pick up to maybe get like good strategies as far as like how to do game theory well? Um, actually, the Rand Corporation wrote a book in the 60s called The Complete Strategist, which is like my copy's right over there. Uh, mm-hmm. Strategist is spelled very weird. It's strategy with a Y and then I, I-E-S-T or something like that mm-hmm. after it. Um, but uh it it describes actually the games that I just described and a few more um, basic basic mathematical techniques to deal with matrix representations of game theory as well as uh, tree representations of game theory and it's got uh, sort of little New Yorker inspired uh, cartoons of the various hapless decision makers uh, in these situations. Hmm. So I understand that you're a recreational mathematician. So what does a recreational mathematician do? Uh, well, math for fun. That's that's the only really real requirement. Um, so yeah, uh, math is my vocation and avocation, and um, I, I I study these things, uh, think about problems, and try to come up with with novel ideas and approaches to those problems. And that's actually where my work in CoreDisc comes from. Uh, mm-hmm. I was working on fundamentally the problem of how to reach a consensus position in networked communication. So the battle of the sexes is an easy enough toy problem if it's some um, man and a woman who can't call each other on the cell phone and make a decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, but our day-to-day lives are the results of hundreds of millions to billions of human beings all making decisions that need to lock into each other and interact with one another. Mm-hmm. And we're very bad at that um, as wars and coups and uh, you know economic destabilization and so on attest. And so finding better ways for people to be able to know what is collectively known um, and act in ways that are helpful to yourself, but not harmful to the group, um, is necessary, uh, because the ways that we had are actively failing. Um, as a recreational mathematician, have you ever tried to tackle one of those, um, I think they're called the millennial problems where they're supposedly really difficult to solve and there's a million dollar prize if you solve one of them? Yes, the Millennium Problems, those are not on my list, I must say. <laughs> yeah, I remember when I found out about them, I was like, how hard can they be? I think I'm going to try it now. Oh, this is really hard. <laughs> they're, they're pretty incredible. Um, I think my favorite one, um, there's something called the Navier-Stokes equations, which uh, uh, Terence Tao, who's one of the smartest human beings on Earth, uh, has been doing work on. And the Millennium Prize for the Navier-Stokes. So the Navier-Stokes equation is a differential equation that describes how fluids flow. Hmm. So water going down a pipe is obeying the Navier-Stokes equation. It has some problems with it, um, and we don't. It's not in general solvable. 
um, we have for very specific geometries and very specific situations ways to find solutions to those specific things. But if if I if I just sort of like took a picture of of some liquid and said, okay, write up the Navier-Stokes equation for that and then solve it. Writing it up would be something that you could probably do. Solving it would not be something that you could do mm. most of the time. Mm. Um, so the Navier-Stokes Millennium problem, the million dollars, is for improving our understanding of the equation. Mm. So it's not solving it because we don't even think that's possible. And it's not fixing the problems where it occasionally reads out infinity because we don't think that's possible either. It's just getting us a little bit further towards understanding <laughs> what's going on <laughs> is so, worth a million dollars. Yeah. So, so, so some of these millennial problems, they're not necessarily, uh, they don't necessarily necessarily have like practical value or real, uh, but it's more so like just about, can you prove it? Um, yeah. Yeah. In some cases. Uh, so for example, the, the Riemann um, hypothesis. Uh, so, there's this there's this weird infinite function called the Riemann zeta function, mm-hmm. um, and it's only defined for uh, sort of positive uh, uh, real component complex numbers. But um, there's this thing called uh, uh, analytic continuation where you can figure out where the negative numbers should go if it was possible to define them. Okay. And one of the famous things for this is that uh, with that continuous continuation, the sequence 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5 onto infinity uh, would equal negative 1 twelfth. And there's actually ways to to explain why all the positive integers added together should equal negative one twelfth that are very weird. But at any rate, um, this, this sequence of, of this function that takes an infinite amount of effort to compute and isn't even defined for these negative numbers, but there's a way to think about it being defined for these negative numbers um, can be zero for some of these negative numbers that you can think about it being defined for. Mm. And the theory is that every single one of those zeros um, lives in a specific line, basically on on the on the complex plane, and that sequence of numbers um, will plug into a different infinite function and spit out exactly and precisely the prime numbers. Okay, which is all really complicated and abstract. Um, and again we can find prime numbers pretty easily, but the connection between complex analysis, uh, which is sort of a a branch of high dimensional calculus and number theory would link up two very disparate parts of mathematics in very powerful ways and give us lots and lots of tools. So there's an enormous number of results where people assume that it's true and then prove these other things and some of the like you were talking about cryptography earlier some of our cryptographic protocols are built on the assumption that this is true mm. and everyone thinks that it is true we don't know we can't prove it but it keeps like 
as far as we can check, it looks like it, it checks out. Um, so in one sense, that's sort of purely abstract and totally meaningless. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, the Navier-Stokes equation really is, as best we can tell, a sort of fully precise description of how fluids flow. And so if we had an efficient way to calculate the outcomes of the Navier-Stokes equation, then we would have an enormous upgrade in our toolkit for engineering. Mm -hmm. We would be able to much more accurately work out how sinkholes occur and when and where they might happen. Mm -hmm. We would have much better pictures of soil and erosion and fluid flow and be able to plan dams and, and canals with much greater, you know, ability. Um, so that, that would be an enormously practical thing if, if we actually <clears throat> defied all of our expectations and came up with major you know, progress in that. So you mentioned calculus. I remember when I took calculus in high school, and I remember when it when it first made sense to me. Uh, we were learning about rate of change, and uh, I finally got it. I remember it just being like, "Whoa! Like this is pretty cool." <laughs> so, being a recreational mathematic uh, mathematician, uh, is there any mathematical facts that you know that would like blow blow my mind or blow our mind? Um, quite a few, actually. Um, virtually everything about math winds up blowing uh, people's minds. Uh, I think one of one of my favorite mind-blowing exercises, which I've quite literally blown people's minds with before, um, is that it's actually possible using this set called the ordinals to count past infinity. Um, hmm. So um, if you think about counting through something called the successor function, um, so if I take a three and I hand it a successor function, I get back a four. If I take a 15 and hand it, I get back a 16. So counting is the process of applying the successor function over and over and over again. Well, if I'm applying a successor function to numbers like we're talking about, then that's that that goes up to infinity eventually, but it, it doesn't really go anywhere from there. But if I start thinking about the internal structure of numbers, I can create a set representation um, and I, I don't have to do this. There's something called the Frankel's Zermelo uh, set representation of the natural numbers. And using that representation, I can create a function that operates on those representations. And the natural numbers, the set, the infinite set of all natural numbers, that function works on that set. Okay. And it comes up with a number that's one greater than all of those numbers. Mm -hmm. And that number is in some sense the same size as all the natural numbers, but it's also logically distinct. It's the one that's after it. So ordinals are about ordering. So imagine you run a race and you've got 10 people. Somebody comes first, somebody comes 10th. Everyone else is arrayed between them. Mm -hmm. And imagine you ran a race that had every single number in it. Everyone was listed, all the numbers. So no matter what number you're talking about, somebody's in that. So there's an infinite number of, of, of things. Mm -hmm. Now imagine running a second race right afterwards. Mm -hmm. Everybody in the second race will cross the finish line after everybody in the first race. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's what infinity plus one is like. Mm -hmm. It's, it, it would be running that second race with one person in it. Mm -hmm. 
But there's nothing special about infinity plus one. The successor function just keeps working. And the thing about the successor function is that it it basically always just keeps working. And so we can get infinity plus two, two infinity, infinity squared, infinity to the infinity, which is finally <laughs> sort of bigger than the infinity we were starting with. Um, and then we can go infinity to infinity plus one. Um, and so it becomes possible with ordinals, uh, the kinds of functions that you might have dealt with in in calculus, these polynomial functions where it'd be like x squared times 3x plus 4 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, there can be a number, infinity squared plus 3 times infinity plus 4. <laughs> uh, and so every one of the polynomial and exponential functions that you can imagine actually has a specific ordinal number that is precisely analogous to it. Um, and then you can start using the fact that these numbers are encoding functional information to talk about even vaster numbers. Um, and then you can use those even vaster numbers that are now encoding radically more complicated functional information that you can't really imagine to talk about even vaster kinds of general computation. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, infinity has always been interesting because like, it's something that we know exist i guess but at the same time we also have trouble there are there there's a lot of controversy about that there's there's powerful schools of mathematics that refuse to admit infinity to their their collection of tools um i think i think that it's a very powerful thing and i think that within the context of computability it's a tolerable thing um but there's this thing for example called the banach-tarski paradox um there's a deconstruction so this only works in sort of pure math we can't physically do this because the world's too clumpy okay. but there's a way to break a the surface of a sphere into uh i think it's five pieces uh, one of them is a single point on the sphere, and the other four are collections of points on the sphere that completely cover everything. And then there's a way to take two of those pieces and put them together so that they cover the entire surface of a sphere that's exactly the same size as the original sphere, and then take the other three pieces and put them together in a way that they entirely cover the all of the points on the entire surface of the sphere. Okay. And the trick to the Banach-Tarski paradox is that while it's possible to do this, there's no mechanism. You can't describe how it's done. You can describe that it could be done, but the the construction necessary for those sets of points requires access to things that you cannot compute. Hmm. So now I'd like to shift over to commodity markets. So for those of us that don't use that term on a daily basis, what are commodity markets? Well, the the key thing there is commodity. Um, so markets, if you're familiar with things like the New York Stock Exchange or or you know Nasdaq, um, that kind of marketplace. But instead of trading shares of stocks or bonds, you're you're trading uh, sort of discrete lumps of stuff. Um, some of this could be electricity that's on the grid, um, or it might be barrels of oil, or it might mm. be boxcar loads of corn or wheat or rice uh, or lumber. Uh, but uh, the commodity, a commodity is a product of uniform quality. Okay. So the McDonald's hamburger is a commodity. 
it's mm. a commodity that only McDonald's can make. But when you go to a McDonald's anywhere on earth, you get the same hamburger. Um, At least you hope so. Well, they do, they do a lot of work. Um, it's, it's pretty crazy. They actually buy beef from multiple continents and then, uh, butcher them and mix the beef together from multiple continents to create mm -hmm. homogenized McDonald's beef, uh, okay. that, that won't have specific flavors to specific regions. Mm -hmm. It's very, very insane what they actually do, but. A, a material like steel or copper or oil or natural gas, uh, uh, those materials have been largely commoditized. And what this means is that um, for people that need to buy them, it's relatively simple because no matter where they wind up coming from, you're getting what you're expecting. And mm -hmm. it's also relatively easy to prepare them because there's a known spec and if you can meet the quality requirements then you can just sell and so what's wrong with current day commodity markets the issue with the current marketplace is the issue that's that exists across our existing markets is that um the market function is to collect what the human consensus about prices what and what price is doing is essentially negotiating between all of the people that make stuff and all the people that want stuff how much to to make and how much to want mm -hmm. higher prices make it easier to make it profitably so more gets made mm -hmm. lower prices make it harder um but easier to use profitably mm -hmm. so more gets used so what's the level between how much needs to get made and how much needs to get used where those two things meet in the middle Mm. Um, but we have a lot more noise in the system today than we have ever had before. Mm. Uh, and that noise causes destabilizations in the markets that mean that people are unwilling or unable to actually take advantage of them. And so they lose enormous amounts of money. Uh, and then all of us live in a world where less stuff is being made profitably and less stuff is being used profitably and we're much poorer than we could be. Mm. And so I understand that you have a patent pending system to basically supersede commodity markets. I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. Um, I call them coordinated discovery markets. Okay. Uh, so my company core disc comes from that coordinated discovery uh, or CDM. And the basic notion is that in fact, we do collectively know what this knowledge is. So just like we used to collectively, we collectively know what should go at the top of a Google search, but we don't have a way to communicate that information to each other profitably. Mm -hmm. We collectively know how valuable it is to actually have something like iron or nickel or wheat or rice and we collectively know how expensive it is to make those things mm -hmm. um and so what my system does is it allows a sort of negotiation speculation where people say how valuable they think these things are mm -hmm. and the system integrates uh you were talking about calculus before uh, integrals are the 
inverse of derivatives. So we integrate that information together into a common understanding. Mm. And then we test that common understanding by taking the prices that have been negotiated and are being projected and saying, okay, how much do people actually want to trade? Mm-hmm. You know, how much are you making? How much how much are you buying? Mm-hmm. We we clear those trades through that system and mm-hmm. then that provides assurance that the negotiators did their job well. And so by going back and forth, like with the prisoner's dilemma, mm-hmm. there's always a tomorrow. So mm-hmm. it's always in your interest to keep contributing towards better and better and better tomorrows because you're going to be living in those tomorrows. Mm-hmm. And so let's say, you know, today or tomorrow, we, we implement your system. Uh, what happens to the economies of the world? Uh, radical increase in growth and wealth uh, spread across the entire productive sector of every economy. Uh, so in the United States alone, um, somewhere in the neighborhood of a trillion dollars is being used to operate the commodity markets. Um, mm-hmm. That's not just CME and, and uh, the Intercontinental Exchange. This also includes other forms of, of commodity trade, uh, so auctions and forwards and so on. Mm-hmm. But that's that's an enormous loss, effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the entire size of the U.S. economy is somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, twenty to twenty-five trillion dollars a year. There's there's a lot of slop and a lot of disagreement. Mm-hmm. Um, so if if we saved even half of that and we could easily save 99 plus percent mm. but adding half a trillion dollars to a 20 trillion dollar economy mm. uh is is a uh one and a quarter percent boost um in or no sorry a two and a half percent boost in economic growth rates so an economy that would be in recession and dropping by half a point is now experiencing 2% steady growth. Mm-hmm. A strong economy experiencing 25 2.5%, 3.5% growth is now a fantastic 5 or 6%, you know, rapidly advancing economy. So the world's sort of advanced and mature economies would start growing like growth economies and the world's growth economies would start growing at rates that really haven't been seen in in recorded history mm-hmm. so it sounds like we would all be kind of better off with your system uh why hasn't it been implemented yet well two things not all of us um the the people being squeezed out of this system uh are people with very deep pockets that are mm-hmm. providing credit for the existing system mm-hmm. and criminals who are using the system to mm-hmm. money launder money. That's that's a very small fraction, that second one probably. Nobody actually knows what how big it is. But they obviously wouldn't have much of an interest in in transfer. But primarily the reason why it hasn't been adopted is that uh setting up new markets is tough mm-hmm. and the existing markets are not staffed and operated by people who understand market structure because market structures haven't changed in centuries. So the the head of the world's most important bank isn't an expert on bank structure because banks haven't really changed how they're structured in centuries. He's an expert on becoming the head of the world's most important mm-hmm. bank. Um, and so if somebody comes along saying, oh, well, bank structures are bad and we need a completely new kind of bank structure that works differently, he's not the guy like like that's not that's not what he does for a living. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so it's a sort of paradoxical and difficult task. I need people from inside the system who have never done anything like this before and whose expertise isn't in doing things like this to come on board and and carry that ball that last 10 yards down the field. Um, and uh, and that's it's a it's a big lift. So my last question for you, Noah, uh, what advice would you give to a young person that's thinking about going into mathematics and or technology? Well, going back again to the beginning, um, we're the technological species. Uh, and so the thing that makes humans and human societies successful is utilizing the technology that's available to us and, and being able to use the most powerful tools in ways that are beneficial and not harmful. Uh, and so this is the most powerful tool that has ever been in existence. Um, if you're not using it, then uh, then you're probably going to be sidelined at some point during your career. All right. Uh, before I let you go, Noah, where can people find you or get a hold of you? Uh, so you can reach out to me directly, uh, Noah P. Healy at yahoo.com will find me, or you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Noah Healy. Uh, you can read more about CoreDisc at CoreDisc.com, C-O-R-D-I-S-C. Uh, or you can hear from me on the fourth age, uh, the AI revolution, where I talk with Marty Wiener, as well as, uh, some guests. We've had a couple, we've got a few more coming up and, uh, that's over on, you know, Apple, Spotify, Google, uh, iHeart, who knows, a bunch of different places. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much, Noah, for joining the podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me here again. This is a lot of fun. All right. You have a good rest of your day. You too.